Reeling from all the terrible news, but not sure how to take action? I'm Kelly. I'm Lila. And this is What Can I Do? Each week, we interview activists about how they took action, what got them started, who helped them along the way, and what they'd do differently next time. In the process, we offer concrete advice on how to take the leap from freaking out on Twitter to making a difference. So let's get started. Hi, everyone. I am Kelly Pollack. This is What Can I Do, the podcast where we help you figure out what in the world you can do. I am here, as usual, with my co-host, Lila Nordstrom. Hello, Lila. Hey, Kelly. How are you? Well, our House of Representatives has no speaker for the moment, so I'm thinking of putting my name in the hat and seeing if I can be the next speaker. I did turn to my parents the other night and go, am I the new house speaker? <laughs> it's not, it seemed like anyone could be. I don't know. Maybe the answer to what can you do is you can be the next speaker of the house. Exactly. <laughs> Speaking of my parents, we have a pretty special guest today. A few months ago, we got an email from a listener who was retired and was, you know, curious what as a retired person, she was looking for some practical advice about what she could do in her community, you know, just sort of like in in the political scene at large. And I was thinking about this because I my mother, who I've mentioned a few times on the podcast, is quite active in her community. She is a retired teacher as well. And, and she, I think, has a good model for like how you can be an active member of your community once you're retired. So we invited her on to talk about it. So welcome to my mom, Carla Nordstrom. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I think we're going to start with our usual first question, because not everybody here knows your whole life story. Tell us a little bit about your background as an activist. Did you grow up in an activist household? Were you political before you retired? You know, where does your political activism start? My political activism started very early. My father was politically active. My mother wasn't that politically active, except when she got a bee in her bonnet and then she would she would get into things. So I remember the first demonstration I went to was when I was 10 years old. We were picketing Woolworths because Woolworths was was their hiring policies were not were not great. And I remember my friend Carol's grandmother walking by and horrified to see me there and said, what are you doing here? You know, and I just kept going. I've always loved to demonstrate. I'm a, I'm a true kid of the sixties. I mean, I'd go out on the street corner for anything. I just, I I think it's wonderful. I loved, I, I would say the most favorite part of my life was during the late sixties and early seventies when we were causing trouble. And then it it started again, you know, in the in 2016, you know, or suddenly it all happened again. And as horrible as that time was, for you know, someone like me who, you know, just has has very fond memories of demonstrating and that type of thing, it was great. I was back out on the street and causing trouble. And uh, so I would say I've I I've have a long background of of activism, but not, I've never been like, I'm not like the head of anything or the, the person who, you know, I'm not Medea Benjamin or someone like that. And I'm just one of those people who's around and, and tries to help out. 
So how do you then, you know, if it's not like your full-time job, it's not the, you know, the, the thing you're like leading a particular organization on a particular topic, how do you decide which, which things to do, which causes at any given moment, which things you want to follow up on? Like, what, what does that look like for you? Well, I started, I, um, I, I tell this to Lila and she's kind of horrified to hear this, but my, my mother passed away about 11 or 12 years ago. And it kind of freed me up to go out and become more active as a retired person because she would always, I'd say, oh, I want to do this. And she said, oh, it's so much work. You don't want to do that. And what happened right around the time she died, there was a, a, a situation that happened on our block in New York City where they put a, a, a 300 bed temporary homeless shelter for for people who were it was all men at that time still pretty much men and who had real challenges in their lives and very soon after I wasn't I, I was kind of on the periphery but I wasn't that involved my husband and I went and or went away for two years and when we came back the neighborhood was it was terrible there were it was kind of out of control. There were all these kind of very sad men, you know, wandering around. Some were aggressive, some weren't aggressive, but just like what my husband would call it, it was doing the Thorazine shuffle just down, you know, going down the street. And it was as if they were expecting us to care for the people who were having such challenges in their lives. They, you know, some of them had been in jail and some of them have never been able to live on their own because of of mental health issues. And it's not that they're bad people. Some are not nice and some are, are very sweet, but they ended up in kind of this warehouse of uh, living in dormitories and when we when we got first got back, it was like that the neighborhood was totally out of control. And so I started to get involved in the in the community, or it's called the community activist active group, you know, that the shelter had. And all they talked about was men peeing on the telephone, that there used to be a telephone on the block, on the mailbox, and all the people who live on the block should get more lights because it's a dark block. It's a very long New York City block. When we first moved there, there was nothing there. There was it was full of parking lots. And you'd have to walk down, you know, at like six at night when it was starting to get dark, you'd have to walk down the middle of the street because it was kind of so kind of creepy. So I said, this is ridiculous. This is not going to solve our problem. This is not going to solve the situation. We need to get into gardening. So I basically, uh, my friend Nia, and my first advice, anybody who wants to start something, find a friend who will go along with you. Chances are you'll end up doing all of the work. But the advantage of having a friend coming along is that you can always talk from we. You can go any anywhere you go. You say, well, we want this and we've decided this. And especially my friend Nia, who did it with me, who also is petite, like I am. I mean, we were ridiculous. We looked totally ridiculous. Everyone, what are you talking about? As we're going around, we went to collect all this all this information from the internet about gardening and about vertical gardens. And we decided that our block was going to be the most beautiful, safest, the safest, most beautiful, you know, block in the city of New York. 
But that's what we were going for. So we went around and we would talk. We went to, we had a brand new city council person and he said, there's nothing that can be done. They have a 30-year lease. You just got to learn to live with it. And we said, no, we're not going to just learn to live with it. We're going to be good neighbors because if the block is beautiful, everyone will be better behaved. And we had we had all sorts of wackadoodle ideas. We were going to go to to Whole Foods because there was a Whole Foods on the corner and see if we could get their day old birthday cakes to, or, you know, the tiny little cupcakes to give to the men to celebrate their birthdays because we thought nobody ever celebrates their birthdays. And we we wanted to we said they're a part of our community. You who run the shelter, because actually the people the people who work at the shelter are fine, but the people who run the shelter are not fine. And they're there to make money and they, you know, they 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 really don't care about the people in it. And so we would we you know, we said, well, we wanna we wanna do special things for people and we wanna make it really nice so that people will uh, appreciate living on our block, especially these 300 people. And we started there. We started going to politicians. They they thought we were totally nuts. But by doing that, we got involved in, in, in going to the meetings, the regular meetings. And for a while there, we had we we had one one man who worked there who actually we worked very effectively and we actually had gardening programs we started off with showing i think the movie's called green fingers and it's about in britain there was a prison where they started a gardening program and they won the royal academy gardening contest and so we started with that we hooked up with other people in our community who were planting tree beds and we went and planted tree beds. We had the city come and uh, train us how to take care of our tree beds. We did some beautiful videos of people in the neighborhood with the people from the shelter doing these planting with the little kids doing, you know, doing it. It was it was really quite beautiful. But we said it's got to be this has got to be under control. This has got to be much more under control. And so we really pushed our city council person to the point where one night he called me in the middle or like at nine o'clock at night, screaming and yelling at me because I had written a um, a newsletter and the headline was Corey drops the ball. And he happened to have been the first gay football player in high school in Massachusetts. He took it very personally. He started out by talking to the wrong people who told him I had just ruined his political career. And he, he it turned out he had a bit of a temper. We got to be very close at, you know, with working together for years. But what was great was he suddenly realized, wait a minute, I can't just tell these people it's 30 years, just learn to live with it. So he really got involved and started doing things. And one of the things he did was he brought in a group of peace officers from the Department of Homeless Services who just who made sure that things were much more stable in the in the shelter. But also it meant that there were people walk in uniform walking the block who were they weren't you know, they weren't the kind of cops who who were out looking for robbers or anything like that. They were the kind of cops who help you. They were the kind of cops if there was a, 
an accident on the street, they would go out and stop the traffic and get everything sorted. When they're unarmed is, I think, they the were most important unarmed, there. But they were exactly what a lot of people now are talking about when they talk about defunding the police. It was they were very supportive to the police because they were there. The police did. We had a really good precinct commander at the time. And but he said, you know, because they're there, they help us do this. So we don't have to. We spend less time in court. We spend less time. We can spend more time being out in the community. So it was very successful. And then, of course, COVID came along. Then, you know, there was all this talk about defunding the police. So they defunded this program and just got rid of them and replaced I think it was like 18 people who worked at this around the clock with like two social workers. So things went back down the hill. But how what I with starting this this group, my friend and I, we went around to everybody in the neighborhood, got their email addresses, have, you know, like I have a a, a big list of of uh, emails from my block. If anyone needs to get any information out to my block, you know, they can come to me and I've got, I can send out emails. We found out who were more interested in Bob. We had some meetings, we had some wonderful meetings. We started put a block association, but we didn't know how to start a block association. And we didn't understand in New York City, if you're a block association, you call yourself like we would be the hundred block of West 25th Street. And we didn't know that. So we called ourselves the West 25th Street Project. And because we had a real name, it was amazing. People took us very seriously because no one else had a no one else had a real name with it. And they'd say, Oh yeah, the yeah, we know about the West 25th Street project. And it we got a lot of access to places because we called ourselves something that was a little different from what everybody else was. And it just evolved. It's it still goes. I still go to these meetings and these meetings with the sh- what the the head of the shelter finally did. He found a PR guy to put in top, you know, put and, and make him the head of the meetings. And he is so disrespectful to me. And I go to these meetings and I'm oftentimes the only person from the community, only person in the meeting who is um, not paid to be there. The last person that they call on, on to introduce myself. And it's 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 kind of fallen apart, but other issues have developed on the block. So it's helped us figure out ways to, you know, to deal with them. I feel like maybe, you know, you you do a certain amount in the city in particular of community activism. And maybe that's in part because in New York City, the the sort of politics of New York City are not party politics, really. It's like everyone's a Democrat here. So you have a very different kind of activist life in upstate New York, where you've spent a lot of time since the pandemic began. And that in particular, it, that's that that's about as opposite as you could get, because you're really working on organizing a rural conservative area with the Democratic Party or with, you know, other sort of like progressive uh, candidates. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, but also like how that is different than the kind of organizing work that you do in the city, but also how it's similar, because I think in a lot of ways it's very similar. Yeah, I that it is. I mean, the, the, the reaching out to people is very similar. The reaching, finding the people is talking to the people. So what I'm doing in 
in this in the town of Franklin, New York, which is a rural town, a very Republican town. I've been involved with trying to run people for local office for town board for about the last 10 or 15, 10 or 11 years. And we've had candidates and um, we always, you know, we lose. We get closer times. Our big win in all that time was we actually got a resolution passed to uh, be able to serve alcohol in restaurants in the town because it was a dry town. And that took us a couple of times to do as well. But through that, I've gotten to know a lot of the people in my town. The town is about 1,500 people. And it's there's a village and then there's the outside area. One of the things that I've used to get to know people is I'm a big walker. And I look ridiculous because I, I wear orange. I wear an orange hunting vest because it's dangerous out on the streets. You know, people could run you over. And even just how ridiculous it is, is Lila once was showing a friend of hers where Franklin is on Google Maps. And her friend said, well, when are we going to see your mother? (laughs) Then I showed up in the picture. But because of all that walking, I'm out a lot and I meet a lot of people. And a lot of people are curious about who I am, why I, you know, why I'm out there doing all of this walking. So I... In in these years, I've been, you know, kind of talking to people and I've told them that I, you know, I would really love it to see if we could get more people involved in, I guess, in democratic politics or more progressive politics. And so I've kind of, once again, I've developed an email list. I find email actually works better than, than uh, Facebook or uh, doing it, things on social media because more if you if you send people emails, it's their choice not to read them. They can't. They don't have to go and find them. Whereas a lot of people, not, not as many people are on Facebook any longer. I'm no longer on Facebook, and so it's you you lose a lot. You don't get a lot of information. And what I found is kind of the key to all of this, which is the same in the city and the same here is people want information. They don't know what's going on and they want a source of information who they can kind of trust. I don't whether they trust me or not, I don't know, but at, at any rate, I work very hard to get that information out to them. So that's one thing that's that's very similar. When I email, I always blind copy emails so that they only go out to the people. It means we can't have you can't have a discussion. I've tried email groups and Google groups and that type of thing, and they they usually don't work as well as just sending the information out. And so I um, I just kind of try to keep everybody informed on what's happening. Well, last January, Michael Moore had a ten part series called blue dot in a red sea. And it was how to organize rural communities like the one that I live in. And he being from Michigan, you know, he, he, I think he lives or he did lives way up in the upper peninsula and he, you know, way away from everyone. And if you look at, insofar as Democrats are concerned, what Michigan has done is just amazing because right now it's probably one of the solidest democratic states in you know the country but that was years of work and years of people like michael moore thinking about how you do this 
So I heard this podcast and I thought, oh, you know what? We should we should consider doing what he's talking about, which is you some of this stuff actually we it turned out we have it already we had already done, like having resolutions, like getting people together, going doing good things for people, going to the town board meetings, you know, making sure there's there are always people at these meetings, letting people know what happens with these meetings, have a party, have a discussion. And so I I already had a pretty big list. I had a list of about 35 people that I would send out information to. And then Lila went to Root Action with you, Netroots? Netroots. Netroots, sorry. And she she came in contact with the people from Nebraska who have this block captain program where you're responsible for 50 people to get them out to vote and to inform them. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to get up to 50 for my 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 group. And I am now up to 50. And actually, it's more than 50 because some of the emails go to couples and it goes to one part of the 50. And I thought, we need to start. We, we, we'd been running people for town board and we hadn't had much success with, with finding candidates or getting people elected. So I thought, we need to go start going to those meetings. So I said, our goal would be, will be just to make sure we have two people going to every town board meeting. We want to make sure they're two, so you're not alone. And so you're not, you know, you have someone to kind of be there with you, but also figure out what's going on with you. And then we ask that those people write up a report, and I have it on this Google Doc, and uh, then I send it out to the people. Well, so we finally, it took a while to get it going, and we got it, finally got it going in May. And what's been astonishing to me is, it's like it's the best show in town. Everybody keeps going back. People are keep going back. I mean, they had a meeting last or Tuesday night, and I got three reports on what was happening in the meeting. What we found when they started going to the meetings, and I've only been to one myself because I can only tolerate one a year. So I, I that's why I said you just have to commit to one a year. But I, what we they found is. Uh, that our town board has not spent our COVID money. They got $196,000 that they haven't spent because they're afraid they'll have to pay it back. And they're, you know, they, they're sure the federal government's out to get them. Well, these people started going to these meetings, found this out, and they said, wait a minute. No, we're not just going to let $196,000 go to naught. We need, we have a situation in the hamlet of Treadwell, which is in our town, where they need their water, their water system is really messed up. They have lead pipes. We can use the money for that. So these people started going and people started, you know, kind of paying attention to what was going. I think, I don't know how many were there this last week, but the last meeting, there were like 22 people who showed up at this meeting. And they we've already gotten the board to commit to eighty thousand dollars of it, which is a start. You know we're 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 getting there, but it, it's actually we had we were going to uh, in June we were going to introduce a proclamation to make June Pride Month, and we did it in the village, but that was just a matter because the village is much more um, kind of practical the town is and much more on the same wavelength as the rest of us they said oh yeah fine no problem 
But then there was a lot of discussion who was going to do it to, with the town and people, you know, when it finally came down to it, everyone kind of chickened out. So instead, one of the, the people who got very involved in it said, well, let's have a pride picnic. And he said, well, come to my backyard. So we we had a town, basically a town picnic. The mayor was there. The people from, you know, the village were there. Um, and it was like, it was just wonderful. Everybody brought, it was a, a potluck. Everybody brought food and people, there were people who got to know new people. And and then anyone who, who was there who wasn't on the list, you know, wanted to be on the list. So they, you know, they added to the list. So we, you know, at this point, we're, we're focusing on this, um, having people attend the town board in the hopes that by the next election, we will actually find candidates who really know what's happening at the board and are commit, you know, want to run for it because they understand what it is. So that's the kind of the two, two things that, that I do. Do you have any advice? It, it strikes me in a couple of these situations, there's been conflict, right? So, you know, there, there are meetings where people don't necessarily agree either. Do you have advice for people who are are concerned about that aspect of getting involved, that they, they might have to be in situations where there's a little bit of conflict? I would say that <laughs> it's hard for me because I just revel in conflict. I'm, you know, one of those people who just goes for it. But I would say that um it's that there are different kinds of people. In fact, I was just I just did a thing with the local democratic committee, the county committee, trying to to show them how you do this uh, thing of bringing more people in because they have towns with no Democrats. There are Democrats there, but with nobody, you know, kind of connected to each other, organized in any way. And in, in preparing for that and thinking a lot about it, there are di- there, people have different skills and you should only do what you're comfortable doing. If you're comfortable going and making a fool of yourself, great. Let that person go and make a fool of themselves. But if you're not comfortable doing that, then there are other things you can do. You find the person who will make a fool of themselves. I mean, my my advice to these people was because they were going, oh my God, what's the script? How do you talk to people? I'm thinking, how do you talk to people? I mean, that's, you know, there's no script for that. But there's somebody in every town, there's somebody on every block who is what I call a busybody who just is wants to get into everybody's business, is a gossip, wants to be up on all the information that's going on, and is the type of person who can go out and, and take the heat. And my suggestion, if you're not comfortable taking the heat, don't. Don't, don't do anything you're not comfortable with. But you can go and look for that person who will do it. And they're they're there. They're all they're all over the place. Also, well, I think one of the things that is always striking to me about the way that you and dad organize your political lives is that a lot of what you do is social. So a lot of the time you're throwing parties, your friends come and help you with things. And so one of the reasons that, you know, as the as the town busybody, you, you know, are able to kind of like help people find their place in the political community 
is because you're also, you also like to host. So you're also good at kind of providing the context for those people. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the social aspects of political work, because I think especially for in, in retire, you know, in retiree communities, but just communities more broadly, I know that this work puts you in touch with people from a lot of different generations. It puts you in touch with people from various walks of life in the community. You know, a lot of, you know, you, you were, you had a house in that community in upstate New York for years and did not meet a lot of the people that you have met since you got more involved in political work. So can you talk a little bit about the social part of political work, especially as a retiree? Yeah. Well, one of the things that when I was young and was involved in going to demonstrate, you know, going to meetings and things like that, one thing, and this would be during the, the women's liberation movement when we were talking about how we're going to do all this stuff. And the one advice they always said is never bring food. And my advice is always bring food. People like to eat. They feel much more comfortable if they're eating. And a lot of what I do, a lot of the socializing things I do is I make cookies for, I make sure there's there's something there to, to nosh on. And it doesn't have to be healthy or it doesn't have to be good for you because it, it just, it kind of always brings down the temperature of the room if you're kind of doing it over some kind of, some kind of treat. So I think that's that's a part of what what I do to make that make that social thing. We, you know, I always am the first to offer my house. To, um, we're, we're talking about having a potluck in New York. And I realize I think the day we're going to do it, it's going to rain and we're, we're going to do it in the roof. So I'm probably going to say if the weather looks like it's going to rain, I'll probably be the one who says, okay, you know, come to my house. We can do it at my house. So I'm always very willing to, you know, bring people to my house. Cause I kind of like if, you know, if you do it at my house then I don't have to travel to it, I don't have to think about how I'm going to get there. I, you know, it's, I kind of like having people, you know, come to me. So I think that's, you know, that's another part of it, but there's some people who just, who aren't, you know, they're not comfortable with that, but there are usually people in in their circle who are comfortable with that type of thing. So that's what I, you know, that's what I do. There were a couple of things also I wanted to kind of mention as an older person, be prepared for the fact that there are going to be things that you thought you could do really well that you may not be able to do well. I mean, I used to be, I was a teacher. I knew how to speak to people. I knew how to, you know, get up in front of people and all that. And I had a, a situation a few years ago where I was asked to speak at a very, it sounds like a crazy thing to have done, but it was a group, it was a reunion for missionaries from China who had been in China for, you know, back in the 1890s. And my grandmother was born in China in this community back in 1890 or 19, 1891. And so they wanted to, they asked me if I would come and speak about it. And so I went and, you know, a lot of people, no, I didn't know anybody. I went to Canada, didn't know anybody at this thing, but I was so excited about it. And I did this whole PowerPoint and all that. And I got to the part where my grandmother was kidnapped and burst into tears. 120 years later, I just burst into tears. And I was like, and I couldn't, I couldn't get control myself. And, you know, it was very effective. Everyone came to me afterwards and said, wow, she 
You know, that was, it was that such a big deal. I had no idea it was such a big deal. So what I found is I can't go and give a speech or anything. I get totally flustered. I, I, that happened to me recently. I wasn't giving a speech, but I was, our congressman was coming to speak and coming for a town meeting. And I wanted to raise an issue about abortion and all of that. And I had it so well worked out on my phone. And as soon as I looked at my phone, my hand started to shake and then I, I lost all my words. So I, I can't do that. I can talk up in a meeting. I can speak to people if I have, if I'm not, you know, prepared for it at all. I mean, that's when the teacher thing kicks in, but the ability to get up and perform, I can't do any longer. And I think as an older person, you have to understand there are going to be certain things that you think you could do and you've always thought you could do and you find out you can't do them. And then when you find out you can't do them, then you just do do things another way. So that that was one thing that I learned that I think has been really helpful. And then the other thing that's been really helpful is learn new skills. I mean, I learned how to, I, I, as Lila will tell you, I'm a real ditz when it comes to computers and um, websites and all that. But I've, I've already launched a couple of websites on my own. And I've, what I, with that, I get help from people who really know what they're doing and who are very patient. But also when I do it, every time I sit down to work on something like that, I have to go we go through the process. <laughs> you know, I always forget what the process is and I can never keep everything all straight in that. So every time I do it, I have to relearn it. But it's been, I, I in the middle of the winter when there's nothing else to do, I can sit with numbers and trying to fit in, you know, who votes for who and who's doing what or who lives where. And I can spend hours and hours doing that. And I love doing it. But I wouldn't have known if I hadn't tried something new. So along those lines, can I ask you to talk about one more thing, which is one of the reasons you're so notable when you take these walks around town is you're really tiny. You're you're small and you're notably small. And that's obviously been true your whole life. But I think that in a lot of ways you use it really effectively in your activism because you're memorable and also you have this sort of ability to say things other people can't say because they're coming from like someone adorable, you know? So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about not necessarily just about being small, but like some of the ways in which people, you know, can find like little superpowers like that, that give them license to do some of the stuff that other people can't do. Well, I think you were, you have been most helpful to me in helping me figure that out. Because I, I, for so long, I used to think, oh, my God, why am I so angry? Why can't I control myself? Because I would go into these meetings and just explode. And for m- most of my life, I have been treated like a kid. I went, I went from being a child to an old lady in, in a matter of a day. I mean, it just like suddenly, you know, First, I was a child, and so nobody ever took me seriously. So that meant I had to yell and I had to scream and I had to be, you know, kind of much more aggressive in getting people's attention. Even though everyone, you're right, everyone, I walk into a room, everybody notices me because I am much smaller than than most of the other people there. 
and in the circles I run, and they also know that little old ladies who are small are, you can't trust them. They're very dangerous. But also what it's meant is in, in since, especially since I've become an activist and I have gray hair and all that is men have to be very careful about bullying me because it, and you Lala were the one who taught me that because it's, it's totally apparent. There, there's no way they can win. It has, it happens to me. It's happened to me on the phone. It's happened to me with three congressmen in this in this district. I was ready to ask for an order of protection because of the the way they treated me so flippantly and so disrespectfully. And you know, one of them actually he treated me nice in person, but then he spoke to me on the phone and he well he he he, he doxed me. He sent out my my who I was to the you know to the newspaper, but I I'm I've kind of with Lila's help I've learned to use this. So I kind of I I look around and I say okay now how am I gonna you know how am I gonna say the thing that nobody else will say, and I'll get a, get away with it because the person who's gonna come down on me just it's it's a totally unfair fight. Because I'm so small and men are always so big, you know, around me, they are always big. There was one particular former congressperson who you said something that you pissed him off and he came and stood over you and shouted at you. And I remember you were very shaken by that. And I just thought, if can you imagine what it would be to be in the room when that's happening? He looked like a monster. And you were the one who had been aggressive in that situation, but you got away with it because he made himself a monster. And the only reason that it, you know, that it, that the, that it kind of created that impression was because you were so little and he just like a a grown man screaming at a tiny lady is, you know, scary to everyone. It is because also then another thing that with women and, and women actually can do this very well, because when you, when you treat an older woman that way, you're treating your mother that way. I mean, that's what everybody sees. They say, oh, wait a minute. If that guy is being so, so um, aggressive with a little old lady, well, how's he with his mother? And is that the type of person we want in Congress who mistreats his mother? You know, so there's a little bit of that in it too, I think. It's, but you've been very, Lila, you've been very helpful to me in figuring out how to, you know, how to, do that more effectively. I mean, you know, play with it and realize that, oh, okay, I can, I can say this, I can do this, you know. And then also you should never, as an older person, never lose that older person thing of being really kind of a ditz about things. You know, they people that really puts people off. It's like going and they, we have this very serious problem with a homeless shelter, and you're talking about gardening. In the middle of New York City, there's not a garden within, you know, within a mile. Well, there is. There's a beautiful park down the street. But, you know, it's like, what is what, you know, what is she talking about? Well, that's what a little old lady would do would be to try to solve it through something like gardening. So you were talking about the late 60s and early 70s and all the activism then. And that's a a time period that I've studied a lot in historical activism. I was wondering if you could reflect a little bit on how long sometimes change takes. I think people get really antsy sometimes, want things, you know, they want to be able to make a difference immediately. And of course, we 
no, that doesn't happen. So, you know, having been an activist for decades, you know, what can you just sort of talk a little bit about the the time that people might need to to think about? Yeah, that's such a great question and it's it 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 varies. It it's in my lifetime I've seen things that are, you know, never change. I've seen things that you know, we're going along fine and suddenly they're changed to to the worst possible situation, like what happened with Dobbs. But there are, like during the Vietnam War, when the Vietnam War started, it was, you know, everybody was into this war. And it was like the switch of when suddenly everybody was against the war and everybody was against the people who were taking us to war was, well, it, was based, it really happened in, I think in 1968, when the country told Johnson, no, we're not going to, we will not go along with you being president. He, he, when he was doing domestic things, he was great. He was just an incredible, it was incredible to be alive during the time when he did all the work uh, on poverty. It was just amazing that he did things that it it seemed impossible. And that, that, that was very, you know, it, it didn't take that long for some of the things then, you know, they never really got We're still dealing with a lot of problems. But with the war, it was it was like a switch turned. And I think that oftentimes that's what happens. The the one that I found the most amazing was gay marriage. When that whole fight started, I thought there's no because half the people I knew who were gay weren't even interested in marriage. And they, you know, they were saying, what are those people doing? I don't want to be married, you know. But that happened so fast. It was just like, it was just astonishing. And the thing that then astonished me a little later was they were talking about it being a more protected right than abortion, which it turned out to be. But it was like, you know, abortion people have been fighting for for like years and years and years and years. And that was not a fast one. And now I think. I think we're going to I think we're going to move on from Dobbs faster than than I, because nobody wants it. But I think that, you know, it's it takes a long time for for things to to change. And then when they change, people can't I don't think people can really admit that they were on the wrong side of it for so long. Because they kind of forget, you know, so many of those people with the Vietnam War, once that change was made, so many of those people would have said, oh, I was always against this war. And they were. That's why we were in this situation. Well, I have one additional point, which is I think one of the things that is has been sort of valuable about your uh, example is that I think that there's something inherently optimistic about the fact that you always are willing to take on whatever the issue is that's right in front of you. And I think, you know, for a long time in in my in my grandmother's later years, you complained that she was getting kind of pessimistic. And I also noticed that she was getting quite pessimistic about things. And I think that's something that people often um, impose on older people is that they're getting pessimistic and grumpy about, you know, things. And I think that's not true in your case and not really been true in the way that I've seen a lot of your friends and you organize. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about, you know, sort of 
keeping a, a broad kind of optimism. That's not necessarily the kind of optimism that's like, we will fix specific things in this specific time frame, but it's more about just like deciding that you should, it's always worth trying. Well, I, I'm thinking while you, while you're mentioning that, I'm thinking back to 2000, it was like 2011 with um, Occupy when they had the Occupy movement in New York. And I remember going down to Zuccotti Park and seeing that whole thing that they had created and other people who are, who were like me, who had been, you know, I'd, I'd known through the raging grannies and through various groups going down there too. And we watched the way they did things and people would turn to each other and say, Oh my God, this is brilliant. We never thought of a mic check. We never thought that every, you, you send people off to do what they do best we, when we were coming up, you were always told what to do. But here, this group of people, they say, oh, I can do, I can, I can organize this and then go off and organize it. And I think that that's part of what gives me a lot of hope because I see younger people are just so much smarter than we were. They do, they, they've gotten into this, they're, they're so much better in the way they, they get into this. They're very thoughtful about it. And what, when I get really discouraged is when I hear older people put down younger people. And I hear a lot of that. And I, that it really, that's when I get really kind of very frustrated and discouraged with it, because I think that for people my age, what what we can be very involved in helping it happen but it's not our game any longer. We already messed up. We, you know, we've left this planet or this, yeah, in a terrible shape and all that. But that doesn't mean we can't support the good things that are going on. So I think it's that's what keeps me positive when I sometimes I'm not so positive, but that's what keeps me positive is watching young people. I mean, when I look at Extinction Rebellion people or Sunshine Movement, I'm, I'm like just in awe. You know, when I saw yesterday, I mean, and it's not only young people, when I see people like Medea Benjamin goes to Bernie Sanders' office, says, you know, you got to stop this and gets arrested. I mean, I'm just like, so it's not just the young people, but when I see people doing these things, I find it really inspiring. And so I try to do my little part. I'm just a little part of it because I'm a little person. Carla, thank you so much for speaking with us. This has been just a terrific conversation. And I think it's it's really good for people to hear from people who are who are doing the the really important little part, you know, the the people who aren't necessarily leading an organization or something, but are able to make real change. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to What Can I Do? You can find show notes and credits for this episode at whatcanidopodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio used by What Can I Do is in the public domain or used with permission. Original artwork is by Matthew Wefflin and used with express permission. You can find us on Twitter at whatcanidopod. To contact us with questions or guest suggestions, please email hello at what can I do podcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends.